Hi there, back pewers. I feel rather honored that Colton and Dan are letting me come back to the pod to spew my Enneagram-loving heart all over their fancy microphones y'all Patreons help sponsor. I'd like to start by telling you an Enneagram love story. That's right. Once upon a time, there was a girl who went to a Franciscan school in Northern California where she had to study Rizzo and Hudson's Wisdom of the Enneagram book. Then she got older and met a boy, and they got all loved up, and he, in turn, fell into the Enneagram fan club hole and never came out. But then they broke up. Ha-ha! I bet you didn't see that coming. And a couple years later, this boy decided to pursue another girl and called her up for coffee on what he perceived as a date. She didn't perceive that. But on the call, they somehow got on the topic of Richard Rohr and the Enneagram. And this new girl, who did not think she was interested in him, leaned in. And if you couldn't guess or didn't know, that's me and he's Colton, and now we're getting married. Thanks, Enneagram. Anywho, if you've made it to me, I hope that means Colton's last episode sold you on how great this framework is and helped you understand a healthy approach to all that might unfold as you explore it. The Enneagram has helped me become more compassionate, more patient, and more reflective. Most of the time, it just flat out humbles me. After reading Roar's Enneagram book cover to cover, I learned where and how I was actually feeling hurt by others and was able to forgive them from the deep places, even if the one who I needed to forgive the most was me. And I know Colton already mentioned the shape of the Enneagram can look a little cultish at first glance, which is why I'm so glad I get to share a little bit of its origin story today. The first person credited with bringing the Enneagram symbol to the modern world in the very late 1800s is Greek-American Ivanovich Gurdjieff. By studying psychology, spirituality, and cosmology, he aimed to help others understand their place in the universe. He taught the symbol of the Enneagram through a series of sacred dances. I'm picturing the Netflix show, The OA. Maybe you don't get it. That's okay. But the first person to teach it as personality types was Peruvian Oscar Ichasso in the 60s, with several of the first published texts coming out of Germany in the 80s. Many credit Ichasso with putting together the main framework of the Enneagram as we know it. But Ichasso drew on a deep and wide history one that modern Enneagram scholars have pieced together and date back to pre-Christian eras, closer to the time of the famed mathematician Pythagoras, as the numerical significance found within the shape of the Enneagram can be connected to his mathematical findings. In Greek, ennea means nine, and gramma means figure or sign. Nine figures. Pythagoras's theories about numbers even come through in Christian scripture, and Christian roots are also revealed in the framework's inclusion of struggle or sin. How nerdy and cool I know. These ideas about struggle and sin are closely connected to Plato's writing about divine forms, which talks about the qualities of our existence that are essential. By way of Asia Minor and Syria, Greek thinking made its way to Egypt, where it was embraced by the monastic desert fathers. Christians who fled to the desert to, quote-unquote, truly follow Christ, after feeling manipulated and persecuted by the nationalization of Christianity in the Roman Empire. Some say it was there, in the desert, that these Christian mystics encountered Islamic mystics, or Sufis, 
who found great use in the Enneagram as a spiritual tool and preserved its teaching for some time. And this might explain why people who align strongly with Western Christianity can write off the Enneagram as some Eastern, New Age, self-realization tool that was birthed from pagan traditions. But Christian tradition and Christian scripture is rife with the infusion of Eastern influence. After all, the timing of Christmas is not based on Jesus' actual birthday, but on the pagan tradition of winter solstice a decision made by the Roman Empire during the time of the Desert Fathers to ease the enforcing of a national religion on all these non-believers and their acquired people groups. Even the Christmas story, as told in the Gospel of Matthew, recognizes the presence of Islamic mystics and mathematicians, or what we've come to know as magi. Ichaso even drew on the Judaic mystics, studying a diagram of Kabbalah called the Tree of Life, which suggests that there are different manifestations of the divine in all of us. So, I think the best way to think about the roots of the Enneagram is simply to consider it a very old map, as Richard Rohr would say. It's old, and I find a lot of comfort thinking about it like a map, with many, many roads and one common destination. To know I'm not the only one exploring my soul in what often feels like a long bout in the wilderness. There is a carved path if I muster the courage and take the time to follow it. And honestly, who and where it comes from have come to matter less to me than where it leads me and who I become as a result of using this tool. And we're back. Now we're going to get into all the things you need to know to fully understand the next nine episodes. And before we launch into the list of the nine types, we need to take a minute to talk about how to identify your number. And there are two different camps when it comes to Enneagram identification, the testers and the non-testers. And this is a frequent point of conflict for me and Mr. Colton. The testers would suggest that you make space with a clear head and an honest heart to take the Rizzo-Hudson Enneagram Type Indicator Assessment or some other trustworthy test. The non-testers would suggest that you read through, or in our case, listen to the descriptions of each type and pay special attention to your underlying motivators. Listen for the description that calls you out or resonates deeply with your way of operating. Both camps would likely agree that you should not identify your type based on how other people with that type express themselves or on how other people identify you. You might be a six, meeting another six, thinking you're nothing like them. We're gonna explain a number of reasons for why this must be. But the most important thing to remember is that the Enneagram leaves space for levels of health and development. People who spend less time doing inner soul work or who are going through a really tough time in a really unhealthy way are gonna express their type much differently than someone who has spent a consistent and considerable amount of time observing themselves and letting go. So, a great way to understand where you might be on the spectrum is to consider it as a measure of your capacity to be present. One last note. We'd strongly warn you against trying to tell other people which type they are. I made the grave mistake of doing this when I first got into the Enneagram. I was a little overzealous and quickly discovered it's very easy to misdiagnose people. And therefore, it's easy to come across as a judgmental, condemning box maker. 
Okay. Without further ado, here's a list of the nine types and all the other definitions you'll need to know. Type one. Type one is the reformer. They're disciplined, altruistic, judgmental, and perfectionistic. Type two. Type twos are the helpers. They're generous, supportive, people-pleasing, and possessive. Type three is the achiever. They're ambitious, successful, deceptive, and image conscious. Type four is the individualist. They're creative, unique, self-absorbed, and a little temperamental. Type fives are the investigators. They're perceptive and innovative, secretive, and isolated. Type six is the loyalist. They're engaging, reliable, anxious, and skeptical. Type seven, the enthusiast. They're spontaneous, entertaining, superficial, and scattered. Guys, only two more. Type eight. Type eight is the challenger. They're confident, decisive, insulated, and confrontational. And type nine, they're the peacemaker. They're warm, reassuring, complacent, and resigned. The description of each of these numbers is really the manifestation of our basic fears and desires. Nines might be complacent because they have a fear of conflict and they deeply desire harmony. Fives might be secretive and fear of coming across as incompetent, and their greatest desire is to be capable and competent. It's important to understand each type's basic fears and desires, and to understand our own, at risk of misdiagnosing our type based on behaviors as opposed to these fears and desires. Which behaviors we employ to escape our fears can be very situational. For example, a three might be assertive or dominant in order to direct a team or an event successfully, mistakenly thinking themselves as an eight. But really, their fear of being worthless drove them more than an eight's basic fear of being controlled. This is why it's really easy to misdiagnose people, and you got to be careful. We'll break down each type's basic desire and fear in their individual episode. These nine numbers can be grouped in a couple of different ways, but the main one we're going to talk about is their triad, which is broken up into head, heart, and gut. And of course, everyone uses their head, heart, and gut, but your triad represents which one has become most blocked or distorted. Think of it as the component of our psyche that is least able to function freely. For five, sixes, and sevens, that function is the head. They're the head triad or the thinking triad. They're concerned with anxiety as they try to adopt strategies and beliefs that buffer them from their experiences with a lack of support and guidance. They're generally concerned with the future, and they have a tough time getting their minds to simmer down. They engage in behaviors that they think are going to make them more safe and more secure, but underneath, these types carry a great deal of fear. Fear of the outside world drives fives to flee inward, and retreat to their beautiful internal world. Fear of their inner world drives sevens to flee outward toward other people and stimulants. Sixes flee both ways. They flee inward to avoid external threats and outward to avoid confronting their fears. Fives are convinced that support is unavailable or not reliable. Sixes look for someone who can help bring them safety and authority. 
And sevens go after anything that are going to make them feel more satisfied and secure. Twos, threes, and fours have trouble functioning freely in their hearts, which makes them the feeling triad. They are primarily concerned with an attachment to their false selves and how they think they present, or their self-image. They're the triad most concerned with not being valued for who they really were as children, and tend to focus many of their worries on the past. They believe that the stories about themselves and their assumed qualities are their actual identity, but underneath their hostile defenses and well-built stories, they actually carry a lot of shame, which is why if you poke the bear, they can become quite hostile. To protect their self-image, twos will focus their feelings outward and try to please others. Fours focus their feelings inward, wanting to maintain their uniqueness in the world, and often putting much effort into protecting their story as a victim. Threes focus their feelings in both directions in order to impress others and keep up their self-deceit. Twos are often the rescuers. Fours are often the rescuees. And threes are like, ah, heck no. They find value in not thinking about needing any rescue at all. Lastly, ones, nines, and eights make up the instinctive triad or the gut triad. They utilize their guts for making most of life's decisions, and their gut is where they store most of their intense emotions. The instinctive triad tries to control and or resist their environments by creating boundaries between themselves and the rest of the world. Their survival instincts drive them toward autonomy, a small world they can protect, and anyone or anything that encroaches on this protected space is met with rage. Eights express their rage or their energy toward outward threats. Ones repress their rage, focusing on inward threats like their impulses. And nines straight up deny their rage as it comes from both inward and outward threats, creating a holistic sense of exhaustion that is too much to bear. They're all trying to protect their personal space, even if there's no threat to it. Okay, that's a lot. Let's take... A quick breather to digest the triads. DJ, hit it! All right, onto the wings. Your wing, simply put, is one of the two numbers adjacent to yours. You cannot have a wing that isn't right next to your number. So a one can't have a six wing. They either have a nine or a two wing. Some Enneagram teachers believe that for one half of your life, you lean toward one of your wings, and in some marked life transition, you might begin leaning toward your other wing. Either way, most agree that you only lean toward one wing at a time, and in each of the episodes, we'll talk about what those unique wing combinations look like. Easy enough. Yeah? Okay, let's add one more before we take another break. All those cultish lines inside of the symbol represent our paths of integration and disintegration. The paths show us how each numbers react to stress or in their need to cope. One line travels in the direction of another type whose healthy characteristics are reflected as they cope with a situation healthily. That's the path of integration. The other line, you guessed it, travels in the direction of a type whose unhealthy characteristics are reflected as they cope with a situation unhealthily. This is the path of disintegration. Take a look at the symbol real quick and follow me on this example. Start at the number two. 
under stress, an unhealthy two will act out their stress like an average to unhealthy eight, becoming more aggressive and dominating. And a healthy two under stress will act more like a healthy four, behaving with higher emotional awareness and self-nurturing. Okay, okay, how we feeling? We've covered the triads, the wings, and how we act when we're stressed out. Let's take one more break to digest, and then we'll head into some more fun details. Colton, pump, pump, pump the jams. All right. In case there hasn't been enough nuance for you yet, we're going to add one more distinction, and that's your biologically hardwired instincts. We'll also call these instincts variants. And we've all got a self-preservation instinct for preserving the body and its life, a sexual instinct for extending ourselves through the generations, and a social instinct for getting along with others, but one of them is the most dominant. People who have self-preservation as their dominant instinct are preoccupied with the safety, comfort, health, energy, and well-being of the physical body. They're concerned with having enough resources to meet life's demands, so they tend to be concerned with food, money, housing, medical matters, and physical comfort. You dig? For people who have a leading sexual instinct, or attraction instinct if you prefer that name, they have an intense drive for stimulation and a constant awareness of the chemistry between themselves and others. They're like a walking negative ion. <laughs> and the name of the instinct isn't necessarily based on people engaging in the sexual act. They're just the most energized of the three instinctual types, and they tend to be a little bit more aggressive, competitive, charged, and emotionally intense than the other two. Lastly, people who have a leading social instinct try to serve the needs of whatever social situation they find themselves in. For comparison's sake, self-preservation types seek comfort. Sexual types seek intimacy, and social types seek personal connection. They want to be involved in other people's worlds. I want to be where the people are. I want to see, I want to see them dancing. Speaking of dancing, one more little dance break to help you soak all this goodness in, and then we'll wrap with one of the most important parts of this episode, personality versus essence. Maestro! At this point, you may or may not think of the Enneagram as just another personality test trying to put you in a box. But I found it couldn't be further from the truth. The whole point of the Enneagram is to show you the box you are already in and to help you find a way out. We're going to call that box your personality. We could even call it ego. The point of the Enneagram is to help us not over-identify with our personality or ego and to reconnect with our essence. This might sound a little frou-frou to some of you, but follow me here. Think of the restlessness Colton mentioned in the first episode, the longing to know who we are, where we're from, and where we're going. Your essence is the abiding peace that underrides some sort of answer to those questions. When you're connected to the essence of who you are, you can connect to it in everything around you. As they say, we see things not as they are, but as we are. When we are in essence, 
we can see it in all things. When we're in essence, there's perfect alignment between head, heart, and intuition. Returning to our essence is one and the same as reuniting with the divine. But ego, or personality, is not into the idea of oneness. Instead, it likes to create walls and labels and definitions to create the facade of safety or superiority. That's what's flaring up in us when we compare ourselves to other people and their circumstances, or when we listen to all the nine episodes about each type and are so glad we're not the others. That's why knowing your type is a way to direct your inner work and facilitate a transformative process. It helps us catch the nuanced devices of our own personality. For example, I'm a three. We struggle with posturing and performing in a room, desiring to be what others want from us. That's a part of my personality. But to move toward essence, I've been trying really hard moment by moment to identify and release an impulse to be anything than exactly who I am in a moment not feigning or conjuring feelings or stories because I perceive it will make someone comfortable or win them over. But it's hard. Our egos have years of cultivation behind them, and it can take years to really spot all the ways we justify our tricks. And it's not that being unique is bad, but it is a tool of separatism and judgment. And I don't know about you, I don't want to live a life that's built in dependence on how others are doing or who they are. I want to live a life in freedom, embracing and connecting with the world around me, no matter how different or unknown. Mm-hmm.